Genesis chapter 3, and we have this titled The Long Road Out of Eden. This is the time where after the judgments have been pronounced that now God is doing something that is incredibly gracious. And we're going to see the gracious act of the Lord here in these few verses is that He's going to clothe them and He's going to send them out. Now, some of us would look at that and go, well, that's a punishment, isn't it? It's a gracious punishment. We're going to see why, how God is working through this for a much larger and bigger reason. And so there's a lot of depth in this, and so we do want to take our time through it. We want to chew on it a little bit and to see that all of these foundational truths that we've found so far in the first three chapters of Genesis don't just tell us about how God made things and then man was put in a garden and then then man messed it up. It tells us the beginnings of the beautiful story of redemption by God's grace. It is the beginning of the rest of the Bible that will show how God has demonstrated His grace and glory to all of mankind to draw mankind unto Himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so um, let's look here tonight. I want to read verse 20 through 24, and then we'll do some, a little bit of review to kind of help us out, and we'll slowly move uh, forward tonight. The Bible tells us in chapter 3, verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Last week we dealt with the, the reasoning behind why he calls his wife Eve. Notice, as we had talked about, just to kind of help with some review, kind of speedily, uh, through, the, through chapter 3, verse 20, she had not been called Eve yet. She had been called a woman. She had been called female, help me, and wife. And now it is Adam who calls his wife's name Eve. Now, that even the idea of that phrasing, it is not that God tells Adam, call her Eve now, that's her new name but it is rather that of Adam uh, calling her Eve. Remember, it was God who gave Adam the responsibility in chapter 2, uh, verse number 20, that an Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help me for him. He names her. Now, the meaning of the word Eve is that of life or life giver. It is one who produces life and gives life. One who is a, a source of life. Now, the reason why this is important, as we looked here already in this passage, is we have seen that they sin against God and immediately taste of spiritual death. They are now separated from God. They can no longer walk with Him. As He is coming to fellowship, uh, here's what we have, is we have them that clothe themselves in fig leaves. They hide behind a tree. They are naked, afraid, ashamed. They are unable to how, now have fellowship with the Lord. They are uh, fearful of Him. They're afraid for the first time. They're separate for the first time. Death has taken place, this separating line. Now, then we get through, as we had dealt with in the previous booklet, verses 15 down through 19, the judgments. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, that shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There we have the condemnation of the serpent, or Satan, but as well in it, the, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the coming Messiah, who will one day crush the head of the serpent, and is that of the idea of a, a crushing, uh, fatal blow, and that has been accomplished at Calvary. And the, the great truth is this, that all of human history points 
to that grand and glorious day. On that dark day on Calvary's hill, what man means for evil, God means for good. That is what God does. And He's done it from the very beginning. Though man in his sin had evil, what the devil meant for evil to deceive, God used for the greater good to redeem people by His grace. Then uh, the Lord speaks to the woman and He says to her, Multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Thou shalt, uh, in thy sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. We talked about how the things that were to be the greatest blessing in her life and the fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply now are going to bring her great sorrow and turmoil and difficulties. Then the thing promised to Adam, which was the land itself, much like a picture of what was going to be promised to Abraham, the land, seed, and blessing, which we see really uh, in some sort of rudimentary form here in verses 16 and 17, the land, seed, and blessing, that now that is going to be full of thorns and thistles and he's going to have to work from the sweat of his brow to produce food just to survive. And then the very same dirt of which he came from, he will return to, meaning you will die physically. A physical death then is promised. We talked about it last week that if you are alive, that means you are going to one day not be alive. Death is a promise. It is a promise. There will be a physical death. Unless the Lord raptures, calls his people home and out of here. Praise the Lord, we won't have a taste of that. But, but nevertheless, if he tarries, you will die. That's the reality of life. And it is a sad reality, but it is a reminder of sin, our sin nature, the sin curse, the sin cursed world, our sin cursed bodies, and the fact that our bodies, is, this is just a temporary place, this is a temporary life. Our 75 years or however long we might live on this earth, it is that long in comparison to eternity. And that there is something more. There is an eternal state. Now, here's where we come in. We get to verse 20, and Adam then called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is such sort of this strange way to put here that there is now hope. After he had just been told you're going to die and go back to the dirt, he now looks and he calls his wife Eve, meaning that life is going to come. There is a life giver, uh, that there is one who brings life. Why is that? Because of verse 15. I will put enemy between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Meaning, there will be a seed from the woman. Now, will it be Cain and Abel who will be the Messiah? No. Matter of fact, Cain's going to kill Abel. And it won't even be Seth, but it will be through that lineage of Seth that will be the lineage of faith that will be the lineage ultimately to the Messiah who is the victor, who is the coming one to crush the head of the serpent, who is, as Jesus said himself, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one that brought the dead to life. It is the same Jesus who holds the keys to, to, to life and death, if you will. It is He who gives life. It is He whose life, it, it, our life is found in. And so as we look at this, this is a beautiful thing because what we find here is that Adam is calling his wife life. Not that he's saying now you're my life and you're my only hope and, and forget God, but rather it's the idea that he is trusting in, and I believe that he is trusting in the promise and provision of God. Because in verse 15, God is promising a provision of a victor, of that through their seed, through the seed of the woman is going to come victory, is going to come life where there is now death. And so as we get into this, we had asked the question last week, is this by faith? 
Now, if this is just as Matthew Henry says in that first quote, he, he kind of gives this idea that if it's God who's, who's telling him to do it, well, then God is just reinstating and showing his, his sort of covenant to them, much like he did with Abraham, going from Abram to Abraham and, and, and Sarai to Sarah. And so this idea is that God is showing that I will bring life, that there will be a, a, a promise, there will be a fulfillment. However, though, I believe that this is the fruit of faith that, uh, as Henry goes on later to say, if Adam did it of himself, it was an instance of his faith in the word of God. Doubtless it was not done, as some have suspected, in contempt or defiance of the curse, but rather in a humble confidence and dependence upon the blessing, the blessing of a redeemer and promised seed to whom Adam had an eye in calling his wife Eve, life, for he should be the life of of all the living, and in him all the families of the earth should be blessed, in hope of which he thus triumphs. We spent a lot of time last week talking about two words in particular, and that is uh, of provision and promise, or promise and provision, however which way you want to put it. God makes a provision, right? This is God's work is the idea. God's provision is God's work. God's promise is God's word. Now, we talked about this. Who is the Bible? Not what is the Bible, but who is the Bible about? Not you, not me. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we find is that in Jesus Christ, we find that he is the one who came to do the work of the Father. We talked about this Sunday morning. Jesus said that he didn't come to do his own work, but every, it is his work. It is the work of the Father. And that even the works that Jesus did, it was the Father in him. And so he came to surrender and to do the work of God on this earth. But then we also find that Jesus is what is called the Logos, or the divine revelation of God, the divine revealer of God. He's the, the mediator between God and, and man. He is the one who comes on behalf of God and the one who dies on behalf of man. And only the God-man can do such. That was what was required. God required justice, but in order to have justice, it must be paid for in blood, but it had to be pure blood, which is only God's blood. And so the God-man dies representing God and man there on the cross to offer eternal life, to offer the way to the tree of life, if you will, by faith. And so Jesus Christ is the provision and promise of God. And so if we understand this, Jesus does the work, God's provision, and Jesus fulfills the word, which is God's promise. Now, in Jesus he was obedient to the will and to the work and to the word of God. He is the one who has revealed the Father. And now as we see this, that all the Bible, and even in this passage from verse 15 onward, and even all the way to Genesis 1-1 to the very end of Revelation, what we find is that the subject of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ redeeming a people unto himself to reconcile all things unto himself. Uh, according to Colossians, you can turn with me there for just a moment. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 tells us this. Verse number... We'll back up to verse 15. And this kind of helps to show us a little bit about the whole of Scripture, but as well that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's provision and God's promise, God's work, God's word, it is found in Christ, the person of Jesus. It says in verse 15, well, let's back up to verse 14. We're going to keep on backing up, won't we? In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's key. You can see John chapter 1 to help you out with that. And having made peace, the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So, we come to this, and this is where we left off last week. What I believe that we find in, in verse number 20 is Adam trusting in God's promise and provision that there is coming life even though he has been told he will face death. This is, this is the beauty of it. Adam seems to call her Eve in order to show that it will be out of her that all living image bearers will come from, but as well that it is from her that the promised seed or Savior will come. Now first, let's deal with this biologically. We talked a little bit about it last week. Where do all of us come from? Adam and Eve eventually, right? It's going to be traced back because there's no other human beings up to this point. There's no other human beings besides Adam and Eve. They are the ones created. Remember, it's Adam who is the first one who God literally picks up the dirt of which he's created. He molds and forms and fashions him as a potter does clay. He brings his face to him after he molds him. He breathes the breath of life in him, making him a living soul. He is an image bearer. Then he would uh, put him to sleep and he would take from his rib and form and fashion Eve. And she would be designed to be his helpmeet. They would be designed and designated together in the union of marriage to then do what God had said that they would do in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. So in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. He establishes this biologically, spiritually, it is there. There's no denying it. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So, first and foremost, certainly she is life, and that she is a life giver in the sense that, one, she's the only other person that's alive besides Adam, and two, it is only through the woman that a baby can come into the world. A, a man, as we talked about last week, carries the seed for just a short time, and then the woman carries the child for nine months carries the child, delivers the child. There is no birthing babies without a woman. Plain and simple. We talked last week for just a moment about how there's this push to try to allow transgender men to be able to carry and to have this sort of transplanted uterus inside so that way they can hold a baby. It is ridiculous. It is it is blasphemous, idolatrous in every which way. It is sinful and wicked and vile. It goes against God's order. It goes against God's biological order, which he's established. And it really, it spits in the face of what it means to be a man and a woman. If you're a man, you were created to be a man. To, to, to be what God has designed you to be. Not, not to be something else. If you were a woman, you were designed to be that. You were designed to be that for the glory of God. Then we have the second fold, and I believe this is the case here. That there is much more here than just saying that she's going to be the one who's birthing babies. Well, of course she is, because Adam can't do that. He's not designed for that. 
However, I believe that the issue here that we're seeing is that it is going to be from her that the promised seed, that the provision of God will come from. And I believe that Eve believed it as well because later on we're going to see in chapter 4, right? They have kids and boom, you, you would only think that they have children and you're going, well, this is it. Right? God had just told us back in the garden, I'll put in between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Perhaps as she's holding Cain, thinking this is, this is going to be the one. said Cain would turn out to be a murderer and not a Messiah. Nevertheless, we see that there is something more here. There is the idea of spiritual life. They now know what it's like to be separated from God. They now know what it's like to have everything in their world be rocked and turned upside down. So I believe that they are trusting in the two words that we dealt with so much last week and that we're going to do as we move forward in this, God's provision and God's promise. Now, who is God's provision and God's promise? The Lord Jesus Christ. That is the design of all creation. He is the one who created all things. He is the one that would redeem all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus, in the garden, we often forget this, and we'll see this a little bit as we get into verse 21 in just a moment. I believe firmly that it was Jesus who walked with them, who came to meet them there in the garden. And I believe that it is Jesus who clothed them. And we'll look at this. These are literal coats of skin in verse 21. We'll get to that in just a moment. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. We find the promise being made in verse 15 and the provision being made to a degree, a pictorial provision of that the clothes that they are now about to be wearing in verse 21, you could even imagine having them watched the the blood be spilt, the clothes being made to be placed upon them. Life has been ended so that they might still yet live. Now here, look at this. Their eternal life can no longer come through the physical tree of life is what we're going to see. But it's going to be through faith. Faith is the key. No one has ever been saved outside of faith. The issue that I've talked to with many people is they have this misunderstanding with the Old Testament. They think that people were saved like Moses and others because of sacrifices, we have to understand that the sacrifices were much more than just slaughtering bulls and goats and rams. This is done by faith, understanding, and they knew, by the way. Right? You and I don't understand this mindset because we've never been told by God to do this because Jesus has already died for us and, and risen again. But the, as they're doing this, they know that this is not going to be satisfactory forever. They know that in a year from now, they're going to have to go through the Day of Atonement again They're going to have to go through uh, next week or the month after or the day after to go take some some turtle doves to be sacrificed. They're going to have to continue to give offering and blood offering after blood offering after blood offering because they know this is not satisfactory, but they give it by faith. And what? What are they putting their faith in? God's promise of a coming Messiah and God's provision of the covering through the shedding of innocent blood. It was never about goats and bulls literally being a sin covering, but is that of the picture of who Jesus is and would be for sinners and the fact and need of faith to save. It would be pointless to slaughter all those animals if you do not believe what God has said to do. right? Remember, it was God who told them to do it, how to do it, 
where to do it, why to do it. It was God who had instituted the Day of Atonement. It was God who had instituted these, the sacrificial system. Not because he had some sort of need and thirst for blood, but the idea is that they needed to be shown and taught that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But even more so than that, without the shedding of innocent blood on behalf of another, that that other one sheds for by faith, right? They have to, as they make these sacrifices, they're not putting their trust in the fact of, uh, of this blood of a goat, but they're putting their faith in the God of whom they're sacrificing to. This became the danger in Israel, is that they would sacrifice and even make sacrifices to other gods at times. The object of the sacrifice. Right? Who is this being sacrificed to? That's the key. So, look at this. Faith has always say, we're going to see later on with Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. What did he believe God? We'll see this later on. The beautiful picture of sacrifice and what it means to be saved is found there I believe it's in Genesis 22. We'll get to it later on, much later on. But when God tells him, go sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac goes, uh, where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? He says, God will provide. So he goes anticipating to do the sacrifice, and he goes anticipating not only that God will provide, but then as, as literally he's about to bring the knife down, He's doing so, as the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews 11, believing that God would raise up His Son. So he believes. It is faith. Faith. Faith saves. But not just any old faith. Faith must be in something. And faith cannot be in the blood of bulls and goats. It must be in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Adam and Eve and all of humanity because of the consequence of sin must face death and are born spiritually dead. We see this passed down on Romans 5, Ephesians 2. Yet it seems that although they must face death, that by faith they believe that through Eve life will come. Not through Eve's sacrifice, but rather through the promise that God has made that through the seed of Eve. Notice, though, that God did not tell them in verse 15 of chapter 3 how many generations it would take, what generation it would be, if it would be the very next. But, nevertheless, the promise is made, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, and Jesus is the provision of that promise as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, to be that perfect, sinless offering, so that all who then partake by faith can be saved, and then once more have access to the tree of life, not on this earth, but in, in, in the one to come. Look, the life will not come any longer through the tree of life, but rather through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They have now tasted death spiritually to a degree. But here's the thing. I believe that as he looks at Eve and they have heard the promise of God is that now they are looking and longing forward to life. They know that this is not how it was meant to be. The same way that you and I, we don't long and should not long and look forward to things in this world because I can tell you they're going to get worse. You know how I know they're going to get worse? God says they're going to get worse. It's a result of the fall. But nevertheless, what can we do? We can look forward to God's promise and provision of a new heaven and a new earth where dwelleth righteousness, a place where there will uh, be 
a time where the Lord will dwell with His people once more and there will be no more need of the sun for the Lamb will be the light. There will be no need for the temple because of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. Faith here. It is through the spiritual seed of faith that will come, that will bring about life for them. Romans 1.17 tells us, tells us this. This is important. Romans 1.17, For therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith saves. And I believe here that it is faith alone that there is this life of faith. As we continue to live, we live by faith. By whose faith? Well, Galatians 2.20 tells us, by, by the faith of the Son of God in us. And so I believe that what we see is that in this, they are not trusting in themselves or their own fig leaves any longer, but it is this idea that God has made a promise and God must provide because without that, there is no life but only death. There is only life in faith in the Lord Jesus. There is only faith in God alone. We're going to find throughout the rest of the Old Testament, really throughout all of Scripture, and even throughout our own lives, that disobedience brings death. This is promised in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He tells Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. It is this idea and understanding of not perhaps you'll die or perhaps something bad will happen, but you will die. It is a certainty that this will take place. And so the hope of Adam is not found in Eve, but rather in the promise that through Eve there will be one who will come to restore, to redeem, to reconcile a faith, a trust in the promise and provision of God. So look at this. This is the promise of life to come. Because she was the mother of all living. Verse 15, we find the promise given. In verse 21, we find a picture of the provision. We're going to see here now in verse 21, it says, And Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Notice in the New Testament, we have several different phrases sort of used with clothing. Talking about, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to be clothed in His righteousness. We, we talk about this idea of justification, where it is this, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. And the moment this takes place, the moment we are born again, that Jesus has taken on His cross, there, uh, I believe it's in Colossians 2, talks about it, nailing handwriting ordinances against us. He has become our sin, who, who knew no sin. That all of this, He gets everything that we are. He gets all of our sin. He, is, he became that. He became every sin. He became not just every sin that you ever committed, but He became sin itself to, to pay the punishment of sin so that you and I can be then clothed in righteousness. Not our own righteousness, because that's as filthy rags, but in His righteousness, often referred to as a sort of great exchange. Now, as we get into this, what we find is verse 21 is a picture of something far greater, and it is that of what Jesus does for us spiritually. We're going to look at that here in just a few moments, but look at this. Man's nakedness. Let's look at this uh, tonight. The moment, 
the very moment sin happens, right? Look, they say, and the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. That's the first thing that happens. Their eyes were open. It doesn't say that they were wearing, you know, a pair of Levi's earlier on and a, and a T-shirt. They were already naked physically. The idea is now that they see a spiritual nakedness that has taken place the moment they disobeyed God. Sin immediately brought shame in the realization of being naked before God and one another. They see each other. They know that there's nakedness. and know that this is different, even though nothing's actually different physically, but they know this is different. This is not right. And so what do they immediately do? You have the, their eyes were both open. They knew that they were naked. And immediately, no one had to tell them, hey, you should put some clothes on. You ought not be naked. They immediately, on their own accord, know that this is not right and I must be covered. What's the idea of clothing? It's that of covering, right? Now we try to use clothes for fashion and stuff. And, you know, uh, we have different clothes, different styles for different seasons. The 90s is coming back, in case you were wondering. Go to Walmart and it's coming back for some reason. Those colors are back in. But nevertheless, look at this. We wear clothes for one big reason, and it's to cover nakedness, to cover shamefulness. They did not have to be taught that. They knew it the moment they sinned, and they knew that they had to be covered before one another, but before God. They knew that they could not be accepted in the sight of God because they were now naked. They could not even be accepted in front of each other, and they were husband and wife. Naked before each other, ashamed before each other. They immediately make aprons, which is the idea of, of a sort of loincloth or belt cloths that cover the reproductive organs. Y'all know what parts those are, okay? I don't have to give you that too deep of a lesson tonight. The reason why that, that is important that they cover up those organs is because those are the things that certainly distinguish them between being male and female, but those are as well the things of which God had created them to do to be fruitful and multiply, of which then they would later on, be able to receive a blessing that through the seed of the one would come the Messiah. Yet, while wearing these fig leaves, they were still naked before God. They could have found a nice, modest, uh, ankle-length blue jean skirt. It could have even had on a little bonnet and a nice shawl to cover up the shoulder blades, and, and Adam could have been put in a, a three-piece suit and even been carrying a King James Bible, and they still were naked before God. The issue is that we try to cover up our sin by the things on the outside, but what needs to happen is that we must be covered by the shedding of blood. And it is not our blood, it is not the blood of bulls and goats, it is the blood of the precious Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can be restored is by faith in God's promise and God's provision. It has always been this way. It says that God made, the Lord God, make coats of skins and clothed them. God's coats of skins is more permanent, but it truly covers the entirety of the naked sinner. The idea of the coat here is one that covers much more than just your privates. It covers the body. It covers everything. It is the idea too pointing to the fact that true redemption, it doesn't just save you halfway or 90%. It doesn't just cover 99.9% .9 of your sins like Jeremex. No, it covers all of it. Everything. All. Now the promise, 
provision leads us to the, the coats. The coat of skin is showing this sort of provision or promise of God that He will make a way where man cannot provide for himself. Man is helpless in this situation. Man is helpless before God in his sin. Man is helpless and undone. He is naked and there is not a single thing that he can do about it. He's tried all that he's able to. You know all that man could do before God in his nakedness was take some fig leaves together and sew them and make an apron. That's as good as he got it. Can't do anything more. He, he knows not what to do and he's not able to provide anything more substantial than that. Only the Lord can. But what takes place here is that as God uses these coats of skins, I believe to be an outward sign of the covenant of His grace and that man must believe on Him by faith. That God has promised to make a way and God provides to make a way and that man cannot make a way on his own to get to God or to be right before God. We see some outward signs of inward faith in the way in which God uses this. I believe here for Adam and Eve, they're going to be walking out of the garden wearing these coats of skins of which this was previously from something living. You don't get coats of skins, and there's many commentators who have put out there, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's coats of skins. Perhaps Adam and Eve only had bodies of light beforehand. There's lots of, lots of crazy people out there with stuff. Coats of skins, you know, you know how you get a coat of skin? Something has to die for that. Period. And so there has to be death in order for there to be life. Now, isn't that interesting? Because just a few short verses ago, God tells Adam in verse 19, In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and thus thou shalt return. Death. The very next thing, Adam calls his wife name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Death. Life. How about your salvation? Death to life. And did Adam provide life? No. Did you provide life? No. It's of the Lord. Only God can promise life, physical and eternal, and only God can provide life, physical and eternal. Later on in the Old Testament, we find these outward signs of things that there is these promises of circumcision, this outward sign, but the reason why they get circumcised, that would not be for their salvation, but rather of a faith in the covenant of God, God's promise and God's provision. How about baptism? It was for you and I an outward sign of an inward faith of God's promise and God's provision. Here, when we talk about the coats of skins, it's important, I believe, to go back to some older gentlemen who I think had it a whole lot better than what most modern commentators have. J. Vernon McGee wrote about this. He says, there are four great lessons that we see from the fig leaves and the fact that God clothed them with skins. One, man must have adequate covering to approach God. You cannot come to God on the basis of your good works. You must come just as you are, a sinner. Now, some might say, you look at that in McGee, or... Are you, are you contradicting yourself? You can only come as you are, a sinner. Well, God doesn't take sin. Well, here's the idea. He's saying that you can try to cover up yourself with fig leaves, but all you've got is unrighteousness. That will not do. It won't cut the mustard. 
You, you cannot get there. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, it will not work. Who is man that we can stand before God in our nakedness, let alone clothed in our own fig leaves? We're still but naked. He says you must come as you are, though a sinner. Why? Because there is no salvation unless there is real repentance. There is no real repentance unless there is conviction of sin. And conviction of sin is not just knowing, well, I, I, it's not just an understanding of, well, I make mistakes or I, I do some sinning sometimes. No, it is that you are one big ball of sin. Right? That's, that's what we are. Your sin nature is not just a little part of you and the rest of you is naturally good. No, it is all that you are is naturally sinful. Everything that you do, even the best thing that you do, is still rotten in unrighteousness. Everything that you do, even though you think if you're, lo- if you're lost today, if you don't know Christ, before Jesus, even the greatest thing that you will ever do is done with selfish motives, sinful practices, sinful outcomes. It's sin. You can't cleanse it. You can't fix it. Second thing that McGee says is that fig leaves are unacceptable. They are homemade. and God does not take a homemade garment. Homemade sounds good for gifts like Christmas and birthday, but homemade here just won't do. Why? Because what's the idea of homemade? When you ask somebody, did you make this or did you buy this? What are you really asking? Does it taste good or or did you get it from a store, right? The idea is if you bought it from a store, someone made it, right? But you didn't. So if it's homemade, what's the idea? I made it. I can't make salvation. You can't make salvation. I can't make clothes adequate enough to have me be righteous before God. And you can't make clothes to make you righteous before God. The third thing he says is that God must provide the covering. What did they immediately do when they sinned and they realized their nakedness? They provided for themselves a covering. He did not do. You cannot provide your own salvation. No man can provide your own salvation. There are not enough three-step or 30-step programs to provide you salvation. There's not enough church that can provide you salvation. There's not enough times you could be dunked in a baptistry or sprinkled on the forehead or any of those things to possibly provide salvation. Salvation is provided by who? Jesus. God promises and provides it. And who is the Bible about? Jesus. Who is the fulfillment of God's promise? God's Word and is the one who does the work of God or the provision of God. He is the one that is the sacrifice, the one that can clothe us in His righteousness. And the fourth thing McGee says is that the covering is obtained only through the death of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's not just this idea that Jesus died for me. Yes, He did. But look at this. It's much deeper. It is that there has to be a perfect substitute But there is no perfect substitute. Even the most spotless of lambs in the Old Testament was not a perfect substitute. If it was, they wouldn't have had to gone back the next year for another day of atonement. It is only through Jesus Christ that there is a perfect sacrifice, a perfect and pure blood to satisfy the wrath of God against sinful man. John R. Rice talks about this as well. He says, God made coats of skins for Adam and Eve. Their nakedness is covered. It is not covered by any of their own works nor any of their own merits. We really find in these verses that life 
comes from death. If you're alive, you must die. But that's not all that there is. The moment you die, you are going to live forever. You will live forever either with the Lord, clothed in His righteousness, join heirs with Jesus, with the saints of God who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, or you will live forever in outer darkness and in utter torment. And both realities are very real. In both realities of your eternal destiny and the everlasting life in one place or the other are guaranteed because you're alive, you're going to die. And the moment you die, you'll begin to live forever. So what we find here is that life does come through death. Animals died. So that Adam and Eve may continue to live. The flood. And everybody that's going to die there allows mankind yet to live. That there would be life. A beautiful picture as they step off the ark and it's a whole new world. It is a brand new world in some ways. Old Testament sacrifices and judgments that took place where in order for Israel to be spared, there had to be Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement. How about many times when they sinned against God in the wilderness and God said, all right, well, hey, boom, 3,000 of you, dead. Thousands of you, swallowed up. Thousands of you, bit by a snake, and you didn't look by faith at the bronze serpent. Dead. Why? To remind those who were alive that they were alive by God's grace and that only through faith would they be able to live. How about the cross of Jesus? His death, our life. We'll go further than that. Jesus tells us, if any man will live, then pick up his cross. Deny himself. Follow me. He goes on to say, for whosoever, right, shall lose his life, will find it. Our death, at Galatians 2.20, when we're crucified with Christ, what do we really find? We actually find our life. Not life that we've produced, not life that we've brought about our own, but Christ's life now in me. Christ lives in me. Christ lives not just, not just that He's there, through, in, for me even, so that I might live for Him. And so what we find is this, that only God can provide true life, but that in these verses, we find just the beginnings of what the rest of the Bible will be, and that God is gracious, and glorious and demonstrates over and over and over and over again His grace and His glory. His grace is this gift of Himself to mankind. And His glory is all that He is so that He would reveal Himself to us. Why? So that we might then grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might give Him glory to whom be glory forever and forever. Next week, we're going to stop there for the night. Next week, we're going to begin as we look at this, and this is kind of the perfect segue, is we're going to get into God's character into this. If we remember back here, let me circle this while I'm thinking about it. This is where we'll pick up God's character next week. If we remember this, justice would have been the moment that Adam ate. 
and they looked at each other and they were naked. Is that they would have blinked. The moment their eyes opened up after blinking, they would have been in hell. That would have been justice. But God demonstrated grace. Justice, what you and I deserve, is hell. One sin, the smallest of sins, is against a holy and a righteous God. And what He has done by His grace, for His glory, that His grace and glory has been demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He died for us, rose again, so that He might live through us. And that in living through us, that we might in our lives, in our minds, our hearts, and our bodies, give Him glory both now, because He deserves glory now, and forever, meaning all throughout eternity. And the only way in which we can experience that is by being clothed by Him. There is nothing that I can do, nothing that I can be to ever earn God's merit or favor. It is all of His grace. And that's what we find in the garden with the very first sinners. And it's what we find today and until the very last. It is who God is. It is what God does. He demonstrates His grace. He demonstrates His glory. And so that you and I who know Him might know Him more and grow in that grace and grow in an understanding of His glory so that we would be then filled by His grace and so desiring to glorify Him that that would be our entire being. It would be our whole life's goal. Tonight, may we reflect and see that God has always made a promise of salvation and that God has always provided salvation and has only and always been by His grace, through faith, in His provision and promise. It's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you grateful for this night that we can review a few things and to study your word a little bit more and just to begin to touch the surface of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for us. God, we thank you for salvation that has been given by your grace. I pray, God, that each one of us would never take it for granted or abuse your grace and that we would walk by faith, not just traditions of men, but Lord, that we would walk by genuine faith and trusting in you and that you have made a way when there was no way. And God, that we cannot make a way on our own. Lord, all we can do is make a mess. Lord, we're nothing but sinners, but Lord, through your grace, we are more than conquerors through Christ, and we thank you for that. Help us as we go from this place tonight to, to dwell, to meditate on your word, to seek to know the deeper things, Lord, not so that our minds would be swelled, but Lord, that our hearts would be more full of faith and would be obedient to you. Help us to surrender our hearts to you as we go from this place, God, to be filled by you so that we might share the gospel as we go out. We might tell others about your grace and your glory, and Lord, so that we might be used of you in this community to see souls saved, to see hearts and lives changed and, and transformed, and Lord, by your goodness. We thank you for this time and go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all have a blessed night. We'll see you guys Sunday morning.